Like I said, my name's uh, Justin. Uh, I have the privilege of serving. Man, it is so good to be back. So good to be back. I've missed you all. Um, currently, I have the privilege of serving as a pastor up at City Light Bennington, um, which has been amazing. Um, but it, like I said, it, it's so good to be back to Salt Company. I'm so thankful for Salt Company. I love this ministry. I love these people. I love you guys as the students here. Um, and I'm excited to continue on in the series that you guys have been going through in Genesis, uh, looking at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing that the God of the Bible is a God of relationship. Uh, he's personal. He's near. Um, he is actually accessible. And uh, we see this um, through the first really covenant that God is going to make with a pretty messed up dude uh, with a pretty messed up family. His name's Abraham. You guys have traced this through. Father Abraham a lot of you grew up with him in Sunday school, hearing stories, thinking he's this great guy. Uh, really, he's just a messed up dude like the rest of us. Um, and we see uh, this blessing that God is going to promise to Abraham in order to be a blessing to the nations. And then through this story, we're seeing uh, as we're getting to that blessing that God is going to test Abraham and his family um, through many different tests. Um, recently, you guys saw the one that John preached on um, where he was tested to see if he would trust God with his son Isaac. And through this testing, um, we can see that it seemed harsh, but really what it was doing, it was seeing if this family, if Abraham would trust God. And there's such an emphasis here that we see the importance of, of God being trusted. Uh, there's such a significance and an honor and a glory that God gets when we trust him. And we see very clearly what happens when we don't, how, how badly and how quickly it can get when we don't trust him. And all the while, God is this personal God who sees us in our distrust. He sees us and he wants us to see him rightly as trustworthy. And he's going to do this by proving himself time and time and time again. And ultimately is the one who will provide in the end. And as we continually see when we trust him, God is actually faithful to provide blessing. And this blessing, it's kind of there's this whole theme um, throughout Genesis. It's the melodic line of the whole book of Genesis, this idea of blessing that we see in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Um, when they walked with God, enjoyed God, they were considered blessed. And then when sin enters the scene, the blessing is lost. And instead of blessing, there's actually cursing. And we are now under a curse of sin and really now the rest of the book of Genesis, as well as kind of the whole biblical narrative of the Bible, the Bible is one story of God's redemptive eternal plan to bring back that blessing and restore it to mankind. Uh, so we see that we're going to be in Genesis 24. This is one glimpse of that eternal redemptive plan as we look in the timeline, see how God is going to be faithful to promise that blessing and restore it to mankind. So if you have a Bible... Go ahead and open to Genesis 24, um, and I'll kind of set the scene as you're flipping there. Um, Abraham is getting older. He's getting nearer and nearer to death, um, and now he's off to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Um, this would have been a serious thing to make sure that your son can get a wife so that the family lineage can continue on, especially if their offspring is to be as, as many as the stars in the sky. So um, before he does this, what Abraham's going to do is he's going to take his best servant, Eliezer. And Eliezer, he makes a very, very serious oath. And, and this oath, he starts by saying, Eliezer, I'm going to send you to get a wife for my son Isaac. 
But whatever you do, whatever you do, do not, I repeat, do not bring back a Canaanite woman. Uh, And the significance of this, a little context, uh, God had actually commanded directly that the Hebrew people, his people, would not intermarry with the Canaanites. The Canaanites would have been seen as a pagan people to the core, an unholy people. And if a Hebrew would intermarry with a Canaanite, it would have been seen as, first of all, disobedient to God's direct command, but it also would have shown that they are unholy. And God wants to be seen as holy through a holy people. So he makes this very important oath with Eleazar, um, and Eleazar is then sent off. So we pick up in verse 10. So 20, Genesis 24, 10. Then the servant, Eleazar, took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. And let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So we see Eliezer. um, He's a faithful dude. If you wanted to have a wingman, you'd want Eliezer by your side. Uh, He is a faithful servant, his best servant of Abraham's. He's sent out with 10 camels and a bunch of gifts. Um, If he finds this woman and he goes, uh, first of all, he's very strategical. Uh, He practices very practical wisdom by going to the place where women meet. Um, if you're looking for a woman, you go where women meet. Um, yeah, so, so, yep, we got, it, we got an amen over there. So some of you guys are thinking, wow, that's very profound. It's not, it's very practical. Um, so uh, that's the first thing he does. He's strategical and practicing very practical wisdom. But the next thing is probably the most important thing he does. Um, and he, he begins by praying. And he says, Lord, uh, I am praying that you would show your steadfast love to my master Abraham by giving me a very, very clear sign that this is the woman you want me to, want me to bring home. So uh, I see two very noticeable things about this prayer. Um, first of all, it's, it's very conditional. Uh, if we look at the first thing that's interesting is uh, he really kind of stacks the deck against himself to... Uh, The point of stacking the deck is to really show this is going to be overtly clear, that there is absolutely no mistaking that this is the one. Um, Because what he asks is actually saying that when I meet this woman, ask for a drink, she's going to give me a drink, but she's also going to water all 10 of my camels. Quick biology, a camel can drink up to 20 gallons of water, Um, 10 camels, quick math, that's 200 gallons of water. There's no garden hose back in this day. There is literally a bucket and a 100-foot well. Uh, So this woman is going to have to be an insane CrossFitter who is going to do at least an hour's worth of hard labor in the desert, no less. So there's really this conditional prayer, which, again, I would not necessarily disciple or or recommend that any of you pray this way. Um, But in this context, in this story, uh, it's appropriate, fitting, And again, the purpose is not the condition, but the clarity for which he wants to see that this is the woman. Um, Second thing we notice is kind of interesting about this prayer is notice what he actually prays for. If we look at verse 12 and 14, at the beginning he says, 
Um, Please grant me success today and show, don't miss this, steadfast love to my master Abraham. And, And then notice how he begins to close the prayer, verse 14. By this I shall know that you have shown, again, steadfast love to my master. So uh, maybe a subtle detail um, will play very largely, though, in this story. So steadfast love is what he's actually praying for um, in the provision of a wife. And as we read on, uh, verse 15, um, continue the story. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with water, a water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Then she had finished giving him a drink, and she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So before Eliezer even can finish the prayer, God wastes no time. Rebecca jumps on the scene. He asks for a drink of water. She does everything he just prayed for in his conditional prayer. Again, not emphasis on condition, but for the clarity. And she plays it out just as he prayed. And we find out that she's a distant relative of Abraham, which is significant because it shows she's not a Canaanite. She's actually a Hebrew, which would have been a noble birth in that time and considered a suitable wife for Isaac. Uh, So we're seeing some good flags here, some green flags so far. Um, With that, um, Eleazar then responds uh, with giving her a bunch of gifts. He gives her jewelry and asks, can I spend the night at your father's house? But she responds, Yes, there's plenty of room for you and your camels. So, uh, but we look at Eliezer's response, uh, and this is the response that we really want to key into. Um, If we read on in verse 26 and 27, it says, The man bowed his head, Eliezer bowed his head and worshiped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. So again, we see that Eliezer had prayed that the Lord would show his steadfast love, and now he's praising God for showing his steadfast love. Uh, We'll see he goes now to Bethuel, uh, Rebekah's dad, and then her brother Laban. And we can read Laban's response as Eleazar is greeted in verse 30. Uh, As soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Do not be deceived by Laban's character. He is a greedy, sneaky little expletive. Um, He is... He is a rotten dude. Um, So Laban's character, we're going to see, notice how he responds actually first. Uh, It might seem really flattering and uh, nice at first, um, but really what he's after here is the riches. He's more concerned about the bracelets on his sister's arms than he is about his sister's heart. He doesn't even know this dude, but he sees gold and he says, come on in, oh blessed one. Uh, And we'll actually see um, 
so Laban's showing his true character now, and we'll see him actually later. He's going to totally wreck Jacob's life um, in the next coming chapters. We'll see him later. Eliezer is not worried about Laban right now. Uh, he is concerned about getting Isaac a wife. So he goes and asks uh, Bethuel, the father, can I have the blessing to take Rebekah home to my master? Sure enough, he gets the blessing, and uh, he is eager to get on the road. And he's not the only one. Let's look at Rebecca's response as we continue in verse 55. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Um, but he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So uh, if we just pause here um, and just think about the situation that's actually happening, this is an incredibly faith-filled response we see by Rebecca. I mean, she is saying, I will go to a place I have never been to marry a man I have never met. And she says, absolutely, I'll go. And imagine the faith that that would take. And, and now I kind of wonder, I can't help but think what that conversation as Eleazar and the Ten Camels and uh, Rebecca Go back to the master. And what must have that conversation look like? I mean, I'm sure she was eager. She was giddy. She probably asked, what's he like? You know, what does he look like? You know, uh, what does he think is funny? What does he enjoy doing on the weekend? I'm sure all those type of questions, uh, this eagerness to go back and meet his master. And uh, he's not the, she's not the only eager one. We'll see that Isaac is very eager as well. As we look at his response in verse 62, so now Isaac had returned from uh, Bir Haloroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. So uh, it's interesting because this is actually the first appearance we see of Isaac ever since uh, what John preached of last week of Mount Moriah. Um, so he was 12 years old in that story. Um, he's older now. Um, and this is the first appearance we've seen of him. Uh, it's interesting because Isaac is probably the most normal of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet we see him really the least. Um, and that's purposeful. And we'll see that later. Um, but sure enough, as he's out in the field, what do we find him doing? He's praying. He's in the field praying, meditating with God and seeing how God is going to provide and as he's doing that, guess who comes on the scene? Read on in 64. It says, And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Uh, so what we see here is really uh, just a, a beautiful and cheesy Hallmark moment. Um, it's picture perfect. This dude's off praying in a field, and on the horizon, um, we have Rebekah riding in in the sunset on a camel. Um, it kind of really just the perfect Christian Hallmark movie. Um, but it really is uh, this, this lovely love story, um, maybe the first good and actually delightful story that we've seen within this really messed up family. Um, 
she gets off the camel. She says, who is that man? Eliezer says, it is my master. That's Isaac. And she veils herself, which is significant because culturally, all that would have meant is that she is saying, I honor and respect him in submission because of love for him. And they get married, and it ends by saying he loved her. And it really is just this beautiful love story. Um, And we see, though, um, notice that it is a love story in the sense between Isaac and Rebecca, um, but also we, we tie in that theme that we talked about before with Eleazar praying that God would show his steadfast love. And now with this story ending in the love between Isaac and Rebecca, we are also seeing that God has shown his steadfast love for both of them, for this family that God has pr- promised blessing. So it is a, a deep love story between Isaac and Rebecca. But deeper than that, it is a story of how God loves his people. And, and we can look at this, um, really, all the similar, similarities. We're going to put these up here. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting story, as lovely, again, as it is as a love story by itself. Um, but notice how many parallels there will actually be. We're, we're going to see, actually, that um, each person of the Trinity is actually shown and represented in the story. And then we, as believers, are represented in the story as well. Uh, We can look at God the Father represented by Abraham, this father who is looking to get his son a bride. We can look at God the Son, Jesus, represented by Isaac in this story um, as a man who is going to have his bride. And then we can look at God the Spirit um, in Eleazar, whose name literally translates helper, which if you know the scripture that says that the Holy Spirit is called the helper. Um, So we see the Trinity represented in this story, uh, but we also see us believers represented uh, as the church, as the bride in Rebecca. And if we dive into that even deeper, uh, we can look at the comparisons between Isaac and Jesus and these two sons, both sons of promise before their coming. We see both were sons who finally appeared at an appointed time. Like we said, we hadn't seen Isaac for so long, but his appointed time was when he was going to receive his bride. Um, We see that both sons were conceived and born miraculously. We see that both were given special names even before their births. We see both sons were offered up and sacrificed by their fathers. We see that both sons were resurrected back from the grave in the sense that Isaac was considered as good as dead in in his sacrifice, but was spared, and yet Jesus wasn't. We see that both sons were heads of a people who would then be a blessing to all people. We would see both our sons who prepared a place for their brides. We see both were sons who had a ministry of prayer while they waited for their brides. And if we look at Rebecca and the church, that's us as believers. We can see that both were were chosen for marriage before they even knew it. We see that both were necessary for the accomplishment of God's eternal purpose. We see that both were destined to share in the glory of the Son. We see that both learn of the Son through a representative. We see that both must leave everything they have with joy in order to be with the Son. And that we see that both end up loved and cared for by the Son. We see this beautiful love story that goes way deeper than just two figures in history. 
we see that this is an eternal love story that has always been and always will be between Jesus and his bride. That the God of the universe is, is a God of relationship and he is a God of love. And all of this, we see the blessing at its core. The blessing is not a wife, a spouse of any kind, a friend, a job, health, wealth, prosperity. That is not the, the blessed life that we're talking about. The blessing, remember, that we lost in the garden was enjoying God in his presence. And we have to know that how God blesses us, most clearly shown, is through his steadfast love. And, and here's why, because I, I really want to tie this connection. First John 4.8, we'll put this up on the screen. Uh, maybe you've heard this verse. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So when God blesses us by promising and showing us his steadfast love, what he's actually doing is he's blessing us and promising us with himself. He is love. Which, on the other hand, means if you reject such love, you are rejecting God himself. And when you begin to understand true love that is seen in the Bible, you begin to understand the true God of the Bible. And it's interesting, this, this phrase, steadfast love, um, it's in the Hebrew, I'm going to try, it's, it's chesed. Um, so if you pronounce it that way, um, you, you need to cough on the person in front of you, otherwise you're probably not saying it right. Chesed. Um, it's this Hebrew word, beautiful word, um, that the English vocabulary just doesn't even come close to. Um, it is a love that means it's firm. It, it's unwavering. It never runs out, and it never gives up. It's a love that goes the extra mile every single time. It is a love that is loyal and faithful, even when its object is not. It is a love that is unconditional and undeserved in every way. It is a love that remains regardless of circumstances. It is seen all throughout Scripture. At 200, I think, 43 times in the Bible, you will see this phrase, steadfast love, chesed. And we can see it in Psalm 63.3. It says that your steadfast love, your chesed, is better than life. God's love, God himself is better than life, and therefore our lips praise him. We see it in Psalm 23.6. Aiden, I'm sorry, I don't have it on a slide. Um, but this is talking about this idea of steadfast, your steadfast love will pursue me all the days of my life. That means this unwavering, firm, unconditional, undeserved love. God himself, who is that love, God will pursue you all the days of your life if you belong to Jesus as his bride. You are never alone, and you will never stop being pursued by the groom. And if you don't know this type of love personally in your life, then you have to wonder to yourself, do you know God? Because he is that love. And again, if you reject this kind of love, you reject God. 
And I want to be clear that, that God doesn't, God isn't some, some just weak, flimsy guy who kind of gives fluffy love and he's just kind of looks over sin and, oh, you know, I forgive you because God is love. God is love. God is love. I can live how I want. That is not the love that we see here. In fact, the steadfast love does the complete opposite. It so radically penetrates and pierces through our sinful hearts that it actually leads us to repentance. It actually turned us away from sin because it is so great, it is so grand, it is so lovely. It makes us hate sin all the more when we understand how we could have sinned against such a love. It's a love that fills our heart with warmth in the deadness of our cold, sinful hearts. It's a love that brings such joy and jubilance at the thought, the very thought, that this love led the God of the universe to step down from his throne, to come down as a man, to live a sinless life on our behalf, to go to the cross on our behalf, to pay the punishment on our behalf, to take the full wrath of his father, which he had had perfect fellowship and love with and had done no wrong on our behalf. And yet three days later, he would raise from the grave on our behalf to defeat sin, Satan, and death, to remove the barriers that were stopping us from experiencing the steadfast love and the blessing that we had lost from sin. It was love that did that. Ephesians 2 says it, because of the great love with which he loved us. For the joy set before him in Hebrews, it was all love, a steadfast love, that pursues and never gave up and never gives up on his bride. It's a love that frees us. And in this way, uh, there's a lot of times where I can, I can really rest my hope on how much I feel like I love God. I base my quiet times, my success, and my spiritual walk and, and how much I feel like I love God. And what the gospel does is it frees me to say, no longer is my hope or my rest found in how much I love God, but rather in how much he loves me. I'm telling you that if you ever feel weak and dry spiritually in your affections for Jesus, if you're struggling to try to conjure up a love within yourself, you don't have to keep trying. Instead of trying to conjure up a love in yourself, would you rather meditate on his love he has for you already? Because in my darkest moments, it wasn't me able to bring enough love into my heart and fill it myself. What happened is I would look to the cross and I'd sit there until I felt it. Because that is where love is most clearly shown to us. And that means when loneliness falls, it means when you're scared, you see, and you're stepping out into the real world, not knowing where you'll get plugged in, where you'll find friends, where you'll find the community that you have here at Salt Company. That means when the friend lets you down. That means when the relationship 
crumbles. That means when uh, the loved one dies, when the diagnosis comes. That means when the job falls and the finances fail. That means when the pain and hurt is so real that you think no one in the world could experience or know what I am going through right now. When everyone leaves and when everyone fails, Jesus shows up and Jesus stays. And Jesus wraps us in the everlasting arms of his love that always pursues us to the day we die and enter into the eternal love that we will experience in complete fullness of joy forever. I can't tell you how many times Jesus has met me in those spaces. How many times when the enemy was telling me, Justin, a real Christian wouldn't struggle with that sin anymore. Justin, you're not enough in this way. You're failing your people at City Light Bennington. You could do more. You could be a better brother. You could be a better son. All of these things coming into my head, and I'm not met with condemnation from Jesus, but rather I'm met with grace and love. And it leads me in his kindness to repentance and to stop trying so hard and rather to surrender it to him. In the same way, just as God has provided Rebecca as a wife for Isaac in the story, we see that God has provided us, born-again believers, as a bride for Jesus. And it means that when you step out and you worry about all those things I just said, that God will also provide for you as the bride of his son. You will provide the people the friends, the community, the local church that will help you as the bride of Christ together. He is faithful because he loves his bride and will pursue his bride. And not only that, but he doesn't leave us alone. That God actually, in the same way how he used Eleazar as a faithful servant to bring Rebecca back home safely, so too we have been given a helper the Holy Spirit, to safely guide us and guarantee our safe arrival back to Jesus. This means that if you belong to Jesus, friend, you are as good as given to Jesus right now as Jesus has been given for you 2,000 years ago. You are as good as his right now. And friends, as we remember that the work of Jesus is finished. Would that flood our hearts and remember that the groom has indeed chosen his bride, bought back his bride, and in a sense of the already but not yet has been united with his bride. And nothing can separate us from his love. No one will take the bride away from his groom. And so too, just as Isaac was comforted, it says that the very last verse, Isaac was comforted by Rebekah after death took his mom, Sarah. And so, too, we Christians will be comforted by Jesus, by all the things that sin has taken from us. Everything sad will become untrue. Everything lost will be restored. The blessing forever is ours in Christ Jesus. We see to end that this story, this blessing didn't come because of these sinful people, but rather 
because God has shown his steadfast love to these sinful people. And those sinful people are you and I in this room right now. So as we go out, I want to uh, use this illustration to uh, exhort and uh, encourage you as you walk out of these doors, seniors, maybe um, in the next few weeks for the last time. But I really want to challenge us to be spiritual painters. And what I mean by that is, what is a painter? A, A painter is just a person who sees beauty before them. They're captured by that beauty And then they try to capture that beauty on canvas for everyone else to see that beauty. And the Christian is a spiritual painter. The Christian is the one who has seen the steadfast love of God through the cross, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we are captured by the beauty of Jesus and his steadfast love, we then in turn try to capture that steadfast love and that beauty on the canvas of our lives, and in the ways that we go out, the ways that we treat our coworkers, the way that we treat our friends and family members and the complete strangers we come across. The friends, I exhort you to be the spiritual painter, to paint the very steadfast love that has been painted to you with blood. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are love. You are not just loving, but you are the very love that you show us, the full embodiment of love. You cannot help but be anything else. And we thank you that that steadfast love that you are pursues us. It pursued us 2,000 years ago when we wanted nothing to do with you. We had no love in our hearts. In fact, we were enemies. We hated you. And yet, love breaks through every time. When it's your love, when it's true love, it breaks the sinner's heart. It makes us hate sin all the more. And it makes us fall even deeper in love with you. So I pray tonight that that would be true of these students, that spirit of God, you would be their Eleazar to encourage them, guide them, remind them that they have a helper who guarantees the safe arrival back home to the groom. Jesus, I thank you that you are the faithful groom who at great personal cost to yourself paid everything to have your bride back. And Father, I pray that as they're sent out that they would be the spiritual painters who have seen this steadfast love and will therefore go out and paint this steadfast love to a dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.